Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, church family. Happy Fall Fiesta Day. This is going to be a great day. Now, that being said, we are in one of the most serious and sobering passages in all of the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And being the fact that it's so serious and it's so sobering, I thought this is a great day to start with some levity and a joke. Okay, did y'all hear that? What I'm about to tell you, this does not have any theological weight. It's a joke, just so we're all clear on that. Now, I wanted to point out that our youth pastor, Chris Rowland, made a very appropriate biblical point to me this week. He said, hey, Dave, did you know that men are actually going to be in heaven before women at the rapture? Did you know that? It's in Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I should duck for cover when I see any lady from this point forward. It was a joke, and it came from Chris Rowland. I'm just passing it on. Today, we are in quite a sobering and serious passage. So if you would, go with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This is a court scene that we're going to be taking a look at. This is going to make fiery little Judge Judy look like a Girl Scout. But when Judge Judy presided, everybody would stand in her honor. So we're going to stand in the honor of a king, not a judge. Would you stand in honor of Jesus as we read Revelation chapter 20? It's short this morning. It's only five verses, but quite a a punch that is going to be packed here. So Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thanks, gang. So what we're about to take a look at this morning is a passage that's not necessarily fun to tackle. As I mentioned, it's a serious and it's a sobering passage. Um, Each week when I get the privilege of getting to preach God's word, I find that to be serious and really to be sobering. And today we're handling quite a serious passage. It's a passage, again, that entire denominations and many churches don't want to tackle anymore. And that is the uh, topic of the lake of fire. See, we use the word hell, and we'll explain this more in detail later, but as of right now, nobody is in the lake of fire that we just read about. Those that die apart from Christ right now are in a place called Hades, which we're going to unpack in just a moment as we take a look at death in Hades. But for now, I want us to be aware of our one big idea that we're going to unpack this morning, and that is that this great white throne judgment that we just looked at, it's only reserved for Christ's rejectors, and it's going to be for those who get exactly what they deserve. 
Now, what we're going to do is we're going to break this down into three subheadings. We're going to take a look at who is there, we're going to take a look at why they are there, and we're going to take a look at what the sentencing will be, as well as is that sentencing justified. So let's go ahead and take a look at Revelation 20 in a little bit more depth. And actually, before we even do that, what I'd like to do is take a look at the blessings for believers when it comes to judgment. Now, let me ask you to think through this question. You don't have to answer this out loud, but just think about it. Do believers have any judgment coming their way? Our initial reaction is, well, no, Jesus went to the cross, so there's no judgment for us, right? But remember, we always think of judgment, or we tend to think of judgment as a negative thing. Judgment's not always negative. Judgment can be positive if you're being judged for good things. Let me explain to you what I mean. There's a three-part judgment for believers. There's a past judgment, there's a present judgment, there's a future judgment. The past judgment is what we would call our judicial judgment. In other words, all of what we should be paying for, all of our sin debt that we've accrued, we should be judged for. In fact, we have to be judged for. And because of the fact that God is an all-just judge, he has to judge sin. So he did. But what he did is he took all of our sin and he placed it upon Christ. Or as C.S. Lewis calls it, the great exchange. All of our sin debt that we accrued in this account over here got placed upon Christ. But then all of Christ's perfection and his righteousness got placed into our account. Now we're seen as the righteousness of God. Let me read to you from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, and he writes of our past judgment as believers. What's amazing about Paul is that if anybody had the right to stand up and say, hey, look, I was trained underneath one of the greatest rabbis of all time by a guy named Gamaliel. I knew the Old Testament like the back of my hand. I could quote scripture verses. I lived up to them. When people saw Paul, they thought that's the epitome of a Jew who's following God. And yet Paul is the one who pens the book of Romans. And he writes this in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. For by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I know that some of you all may come from backgrounds. Maybe you were born and raised in it. Maybe you came from a religious background that teaches you that there are all these things according to a law or commandments that you have to do if you ever want God to accept you. Then we pick up the scriptures only to read that there is nothing that I can do. There's no work of the law. There's no good work. There's no good deed that I could ever do to repay God, number one, for the sin that I've committed, or number two, to have anything that I could ever give to him that he doesn't already have. What in my pride would ever make me think that I have anything to offer God Almighty? And I know this might sound weird, but that's the epitome of false religion. It's pride in thinking that we could become a God or that we could ever do anything to repay God Almighty. Well, then there's our present judgment. Now, let me begin to explain this one. You are forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future. It has no sticking power. The penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin in your life has been destroyed. And one day the presence of sin will be fully removed. However, here's the weird paradox. Even though I am seen as completely righteous, completely perfected and forgiven because of what Christ has done, I still don't live up to my identity. 
And so I still fall into sin. And because of the fact that God loves me, he will discipline me to have me become more like Christ. Now, again, I hope we're clear on this. Doesn't matter what you do. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, all of your sin is paid for past, present, and future. Now, that doesn't mean stay in your sin. I think that we do people a disservice by telling them, God tells you, just come just as you are. That's true. That's exactly what he says. Come just as you are. The sinner, the prostitute, the rapist, the murderer, come just as you are. But you know what Jesus always told people once they did come to him? Now go and sin no more. Go show the world what it is that I have done in your life. Because if we get that thought in our mind of, well, I've been forgiven, all my sins forgiven, so now I can go live like hell for the rest of my life. I think we have missed, one, what it cost Jesus, and number two, who he is and what he's done in our life. I think that we have missed the point. However, I want to ask this question. Y'all know you better give an answer. How many of y'all sinned this week? Okay, some of you weren't listening, so you sinned by not listening to what the pastor said, right? The rest of you that were listening just lied. Remember, so now that's a sin. So what does God do when it comes to our sin? We all, we all admitted, yes, we probably sinned at some point in this week, whether it be in thought, word, or deed. What does God do for us? Now, this is a blessing. This doesn't sound like a blessing, but this is a blessing. He'll actually discipline us. Instead of leaving us in the trajectory of our sin, he'll put people in our lives to hold us accountable. He might allow something to happen that gets our attention. I don't know what that's going to look like in our individual lives, but here's what I do know. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, tells us that God loves us so much like a dad loves his child that he'll discipline us. Look with me, if you would, in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you hear that? God disciplines us because he loves us and he wants us to have, listen to these words, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I have discovered that those that live sexually promiscuous lives or have been bound up by things like drugs or alcohol are constantly anxious constantly worried about what might happen next. I've discovered that those that are gossipers and liars are constantly having to worry and be anxious about whether or not they might get caught and their sin might find them out. But then I have met people that just faithfully walk with Jesus regardless of what they have to endure. And that anxiety level seems to be a whole lot lower because we're not worried about what's going to happen to us the next day. Just to bring a little bit of light to the situation again, I got to share with you this bumper sticker I saw. I thought this was great. 
It said, my dad used to spank me. And it resulted in this weird sociological phenomenon. I actually respect people. I love that. Leave here and go spank your kids. <laughs> and then there's our future judgment. Our deeds are going to be judged and they're going to yield reward. There's this thing called the judgment seat of Christ, talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I want to make us all aware before I even read the passage that this is a blessing of a judgment seat to sit at, not one that we have to fear. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our English language sometimes loses the thrust of certain passages, but we have the words judgment seat or judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. And all we see is judgment or judgment seat, but the word that's used there is the word bema. That word bema would have been a judge at an Olympic Games sitting on a, what would look like a throne and doling out rewards for having participated well in the games. One day we're going to get to sit before Jesus. He's, he's going to dole out rewards. Again, I know we want more. Sometimes I want more when it comes to answers as to what that's going to look like. I don't know. I know that heaven is going to be heaven for all believers. That I know for sure. I know that our rewards are going to vary in differing degrees. That part I know for sure. What are we going to do with them? Well, the only thing that I do know for sure is that we're going to cast them at his feet to worship him. Now, exactly what that's going to look like, what's going to happen after we cast them at his feet, that I don't know. And there are certain things that I just have to be okay with this side of heaven. I also know that we're going to find out someday. So my goal this side of heaven, I pray your goal this side of heaven, is that we just serve Jesus with everything that we've got because he's worthy of honor and glory. Let him be responsible for giving out the rewards and then let him be responsible for what we do with those rewards once we get to heaven. But this side of heaven, Jesus is amazing. If you ever get a chance to just pick up your Bibles and just look through the scriptures at the description of Jesus, especially in the book of Revelation, but even as you look at the Old Testament, we get descriptions of Jesus before he even came on the scene as to how awesome and how amazing he is going to be. Just take note of what you read in scripture about how awesome Jesus is and why we're going to worship him. I can't wait to see what it's going to be like when we're no longer bound by these sin-stained bodies and we really get to experience that intimate fellowship with Jesus. But prior to that, I just want to keep bringing him honor and glory. I want to make him pleased, not because I have to in order to earn salvation, quite the opposite. I was just talking in the park for quite some time uh, a couple days ago with two really nice young men from a group called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if you don't know much about the Mormon church, there is this belief that you have to do all these good things and you never know if you've done enough to enter into what they believe is the highest heaven so they can attain godhood. And my heart broke for these two young men because I had to ask them, Guys, how do you ever know when you've done enough? And you know what their response was? You don't. You just hope that when you get there, you've done enough. And if not, we can do more in the afterlife. I'm not going to dive too much further into that other than saying that is the belief of most people that you come in contact with. There's got to be something I can do to earn my way to God. 
There's got to be something that I can do to maybe even earn my godhood. Remember, that was the fall of Adam and Eve, thinking that God didn't give them enough, they needed more, or that they could become just like him. All right, at this point, let's begin to unpack our passage at hand. It begins in verses 11 through 13. It tells us about the who that is at the great white throne judgment. Verses 11 through 13 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So who's present at the great white throne judgment? Well, first of all, there's the living judge, and then there's dead unbelievers. Now, it's important to note that the first thing that John writes about is the judge doing the summoning, not the ones that got summoned. Thrones are mentioned almost 50 times in the book of Revelation. And this throne that's being spoken of here is the seat of God as he sovereignly rules and he judges all humans who have ever lived in all of human history. And then it's called great. Why? Not just because of the immensity and the awesomeness of the throne, but because of the immensity and the awesomeness of the one who sits on the throne. And then it's described as being white, which refers to his absolute holiness Remember, we are always judged according to God's holiness, not compared to another person. I have heard so many times people tell me, well, I'm not a rapist, I'm not a child molester, I'm not a murderer, so I should be going to heaven. And all the while we forget, God doesn't grade on a curve, he grades on a cross. So if I don't measure up to the cross, I'm in a lot of trouble. Now here's the debate. Who's seated on the throne? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? I think the answer is yes. I think it's both. Here's why. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, the one who conquers, now remember the one who conquers, it's being spoken of, 1 John chapter 4 says, anybody that's a follower, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, so the one who, or the follower of Jesus, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Remember, this is Jesus speaking, so it looks like they're both there. I can also go to the end of the book of Revelation, the last chapter in all of the Bible. Revelation 22, 1 through 3 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Who's going to be there? God the Father and God the Son. Now let's talk about the dead that are spoken of. The dead always refers to separation, those that are separated from Christ. Remember, the first death is the separation of our soul from the body. The second death that we're going to take a look at is the separation of that soul, the eternal soul, from God Almighty. And then it says that the dead are separated both great and small, which means it doesn't matter if you held a position of high authority in a company or you were unemployed. It doesn't matter if you were rich and living in a mansion or if you were poor and living in a shack. It doesn't matter if you were highly influential 
or you live the life of absolute obscurity. Everyone who lives and then dies without Jesus as Lord and Savior is going gonna, is gonna to face the exact same fate. Now, I'm going to get to this in just a moment because people have asked this question. So you mean that little old lady that was really nice and lives down the street is going to share in the same fate as Adolf Hitler? Stick with me. I'm going to get to that. But let me first answer this question. Why is the little old lady that didn't trust in Jesus and Adolf Hitler and that nice agnostic or atheist and that nice cult member, why are they all standing before the great white throne judgment. Going back to verse 12, look at verses 12 and 13 again. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Note this, every sinful thought Every sinful word, every sinful deed is going to be judged. And that's why Jesus' rejectors will be at the great white throne judgment. Remember, again, it's being measured against God's perfect and holy standard, not on a curve. So when every person that has ever lived has to stand before the Lord, none of them will be able to say that Romans 3.23 doesn't apply to them. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus tried to point this out in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Y'all remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus gives these impossible commandments. Starts listing all of these things that nobody could ever live up to. He starts to give commandments regarding marriage regarding oaths that people weren't supposed to be taking. He says, if you get angry with your brother, it's just as bad as if you killed him because you killed him in your heart. He says, lust is just as bad as, as adultery because you've already committed adultery with this person in your heart. He says, you're supposed to go out and love your enemies, even those that have killed your family members. Because remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to people that have had family members killed by the Roman regime. He goes, I want you to go bless them. And everybody's looking at him going, we could never live up to those. And Jesus says, you're right. In fact, I'm even going to take this a step further. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he says that you, therefore, must be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. To which I'm going to just kind of interject a little bit or guess as to what might have been said at this point. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, now just go and be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's your response? I'm hosed. In modern day slang language, I'm hosed. I could never live up to that. To which I believe Jesus would respond, you finally get it. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Sadducees. He's talking to lawyers. talking to scribes. He's talking to religious leaders. All the people that thought they had it all figured out. In fact, at this point in time when Jesus is speaking, Saul, who becomes Paul, hasn't been converted yet. He may have been in this group hearing this. And going, well, wait a minute, if I have to go and be perfect in order to get to heaven and I could never be perfect, that means nobody's going to heaven. To which, again, Jesus goes, you finally get it. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. However, as he's about to teach what I'm about to do for you and having my body broken for you and my blood shed for you is something that you don't deserve. And because of what I'm about to do, you're going to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We'll get there in just a moment. Let's talk about the difference between the book 
and books. I hope as good observers of Scripture, you noticed the difference between the plural and the singular. Those that are unbelievers are going to be judged by books. Those that are believers are going to be judged by singular, a book. Again, the plural ending of books has to do with each individual that has not yet trusted in Christ or doesn't trust Christ. They're going to be judged based off books, based off what they have done. There's a book for each one of them. But for the followers of Jesus, there's a book. It's the Lamb's Book of Life, and that's because there's only one Savior. Acts chapter 4 tells us there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That means that there's only one that can save us from our sin. I can't save myself. No religious leader or guru can save you. No teacher can save you. Your parents can't save you. Your grandparents can't save you. It's only Jesus. So if somebody dies without Jesus, books will be opened. For those that die with Jesus, a book will be opened. Here's why. When books are opened, the deeds of that person are being read. And the deeds of that person are what are going to condemn them. When the Lamb's book of life is opened on your behalf, the deeds that Jesus committed are going to be applied to you. And instead of being condemned, you're going to be justified because of what Jesus has done. Now, I want to go back to the objection. Well, wait a minute. For the people that have books and their books are opened and their deeds are read, well, that nice little old lady, she got a lot less bad deeds than, say, Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer or Charles Manson. So it's not fair that everybody gets the same punishment. To, again, which I would reply, Scripture doesn't teach that either. Everybody that that rejects Jesus is going to end up in the lake of fire but their judgments or their degrees of punishment are going to be different. I'm just going to give you two passages out of many. They both come from the lips of Jesus. The first is in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. Jesus says this, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Mark chapter 12 Verses 38 through 40, in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So if I could sum this up in a nutshell, everyone who rejects Jesus is going to be miserable in hell. They just won't be equally miserable. There's going to be a differing degree of punishment. And here's the last part of our passage. It speaks to what is going to happen at the great white throne judgment. It's found in verses 14 and 15. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All unbelievers are going to be cast into the lake of fire. And this is what's going to be happening at their sentencing. Their sentencing is going to be a casting into that lake of fire. Now, death in Hades, death speaks of the grave. It holds the physical body, the rotting bones, the decaying flesh of the person that has died. Hades is the temporary holding place of unbelievers. Again, let us be clear on this. We use the word hell, and we think of that as all-encompassing. But right now, the hell that we're thinking of, the lake of fire, is completely uninhabited. It's totally vacant. So right now, those that have died are, what's, are in what's like a, a, like a holding place, and they're waiting their final sentence for the state penitentiary. It's like a little jail cell until they go to maximum security. 
That's what people are waiting for. That has not yet happened. Remember, the lake of fire doesn't get filled or doesn't start to get filled until the end of the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, the Antichrist and the false prophet get cast into the lake of fire. Then we go through that thousand-year millennium. Remember, during that time, Satan is bound. Then he'll get released for a period of time. So he's in the abyss, which is like another one of those quadrants of hell. He'll finally get released. He'll start this rebellion or revolt against Jesus. He'll lose quick. Then he gets cast into the lake of fire. Once he's cast into the lake of fire, that's when the great white throne judgment takes place. And then all unbelievers who get their resurrection bodies will get judged at the great white throne judgment, then get cast in the lake of fire. Whew. Again, welcome to seminary course. There you go. There's a whole bunch of eschatology in one shot. But that's what's going to happen. Now, what I'd like to do at this point before we close is let's take a look at the lake of fire. Again, this is not a fun topic. Hang in there. Because starting next week, we've got four weeks of taking a look at what our heavenly abode, our final destination, is going to be like. I can't wait. We're going to get to take a look at what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. But for now, I hope that this causes some angst in our lives, knowing that no matter who it is you've laid eye contact on this week or in the week coming, they are a soul that will spend eternity somewhere. And if it's the lake of fire, this is what awaits the people that don't trust in Christ. Number one, out of five things that I listed, and there's a lot more, so this is not exhaustive, but the first thing that I noted is that according to Revelation chapter 20, it's a place of fire, which means that it's a place of judgment and it's also a place of pain and torment. Secondly, it's described as a place of total darkness, which means isolation for all its inhabitants. I had been sharing the gospel with four young guys that were working out at the gym, and I shared with them the good news of Jesus, and they're like, well, I've heard some of this before, and so you, you honestly believe that if I don't trust in Jesus, I'm going to spend forever in hell? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what Scripture teaches. This is exactly what Jesus taught, because unless we're perfect, and unless Jesus paid the perfect penalty for us, and we've accepted that, we have no hope of going to heaven. To which they responded, well, I'm cool with going to hell. I'm going to party it up there. To which, again, they think that's funny, but if we take a look at Scripture, it's described as a place of absolute darkness. You're not partying with your friends. You're completely isolated. You don't even get to wallow in your misery with another individual. Third, it is said that this is a place where their worm never dies. Now, I've racked my brain about what does that mean, that their worm never dies. From studying Scripture, from taking a look at some different commentaries, the best answer that I could come up with is that it most likely refers to their consciences gnawing away at them for all of eternity for their rejection of Christ. They know without a doubt that they are in sin. Fourth, it's said to be a place of banishment from God's kingdom. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 8, but we have this desire within us for intimacy, for love, for fellowship, and it's going to be actualized at its highest point when we get to heaven, and yet people are never going to get to experience that, that rejected Christ. And then lastly, Matthew chapter 8 verse 12 tells us that this is going to be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping has to do with the sadness and the pain. The gnashing of teeth is a Hebraism for anger. These people are going to be angry at God. Instead of bowing down and worshiping him or asking for forgiveness, they're going to continuously be angry. We're going to hit on this passage in about three or four weeks, so I'm not going to unpack it too much. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, it says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. 
Without breaking that down too much, let me just tell you that the Greek verbiage that's used there is a verb tense that has to do with something happening in the present and going on to, into the eternal or unforeseeable future, which means those that are shaking their fists at God hate him in their sin. That sex addict, that drug addict, that alcoholic, that greedy person, that liar, they're going to continue to do all of those things for all of eternity, which means that their punishment for eternity is going to be just. Nobody can say that it isn't fair because God's going to finally give them what is fair and what is just. In conclusion, judges and jurors, especially in high-profile court cases, they have to make some really difficult and life-changing pronouncements of judgment. They do it based off what we call a preponderance of evidence. In the final case, final court scene in all of human history, there's no jury. There's just a judge. And he is going to make the perfect judgment. Now again, being the fact that we should not want our worst enemies to go to the lake of fire, we have got to be clear and we've got to be concise when we present the gospel. So how do we do that? Remember around here we answer five basic questions. Where did I come from? Keep it simple. God Almighty made us in his image. Everything in the universe points to God. Everything from the amazing complexity of the DNA that makes up our bodies, the amazing complexity that makes up the human eye, that enables you to see something and then process it in your brain, the amazing complexity that happens as your brain develops the ability to make or think a thought and then to speak a word, the amazing effects that are happening inside of your body right now as it digests food, the amazing ability that God gave us to reproduce others that are created in his image. All of those things are fascinating when it comes to who God is. Remember the first question, where did I come from? I come from an amazing God who is omnipotent, omniscient, completely intelligent, knows all things from beginning to end. So why am I here? To bring God Almighty, that amazing God who created us, glory. That's why I exist. And when I bring him glory, I live with so much more peace in my life. However, this world lacks peace, so what's gone wrong? We have. We've sinned and messed it all up, which begs the question, how does it get fixed? Well, we don't fix it. God Almighty is the only one that can fix the mess that we have put ourselves in. He did it by coming as the person of Jesus and dying on a cross, which answers the last question, where am I going when I die? It all depends on what you do with the one who died on a cross for all of your sins and rose again on the third day. Keep it simple. God Almighty made me. He made me to be in relationship with him. I messed it up. He fixed it through the person of Jesus, dying on a cross and rising again. And now I can be in heaven with him forever if I trust Jesus, if I trust God Almighty. Amen? That's the Jesus that we serve. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we are so thankful, Lord, that you made us. You didn't have to. Uh, but Lord, you did, and you did it for your glory. And one day we get to experience that in fullness. We get to experience your glory. We get to experience the greatest of intimacy and love and fellowship. But Lord, until that day, may we tell everybody we come in contact with who you are. Lord, would you remind us that we have never made eye contact with someone that isn't going to spend eternity somewhere. And may that spur us on to share the good news of who you are, Jesus, that you are their creator that, Lord, you made them to glorify you, that even though we messed all of that up, you came and died for us and rose again. And, Lord, even more good news, you're coming again for us. We can't wait till you come again for us. In the meantime, we want to bring you honor and glory. We lift all these things up to you in the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said? Amen. Gang, God's not bound by time.
we are Change Your Clocks. See you next Sunday. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.